podcast, we reviewed the state of Ethernet fabric in 2018, and it seems like back in the 2010-2012 days before SDN became the new marketing hotness, new fabric products for the data center were being churned out by the vendors. Everyone had at least one fabric, and some had two or even three. As time has marched on, many of those Ethernet fabrics have dropped off the map. And to catch us up and review with us what Ethernet fabric means today is Stefan Fuant, a Juniper ambassador, quadruple J in CIE, and a published author. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this and all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and unfortunately absent is the unstoppable Chris Wall. He prefers his Ethernet fabric to be plaid, and he'd tell you that if he was here. But unfortunately, due to the complexity of schedules and people flying all over the world and so on, we couldn't just line everything up today. So decided to run myself. I'm flying solo, everyone. Look out. Stephen, would you uh, welcome to the show, first of all. Good to have you on Data Knots and introduce yourself. Thank you so much, uh, Ethan. An absolute pleasure to be here today. Uh, so my name is Stefan Fuant. As Ethan mentioned, I am a Juniper ambassador, one of 24 in the world, and recently published a book on Juno's Fusion Data Center, which uh, hopefully we'll touch on a little bit today as we discuss Ethernet fabrics. Awesome. Let's start out with some level setting, uh, Stefan. Back in the day, th- defining what an Ethernet fabric was and, and was not took up a lot of keystrokes. A lot of bloggers and, uh, and technical marketing engineers and so on were expressing many strong opinions. So in your estimation, what is an Ethernet fabric today? And is it somehow different from a plain old Ethernet network? So that's a, that's a great question, Ethan. So let's start out by describing what an Ethernet fabric is and what it's not. I'd say that in, in this sort of the classic nomenclature today, an Ethernet fabric is really all about simplifying network operations and, and giving us that single pane of glass. It's not necessarily different in terms of the Ethernet services it's providing to the end users. It's really more or less designed to simplify the lives of the network operator. So there's some other benefits. I'll talk about those in just a minute. But at its simplistic you know, case, it's really about linking up a certain number of switches, having them all managed un- under a single pane of glass for a single pane of glass for operations, right? Furthermore, you know, the control plane is centralized on, on all of these devices. So typically, if you uh, have multiple switches in a fabric, we're going to have that control plane centralized, but we're going to have it spread out across a couple of switches for redundancy. But because of this, what, what happens is we get some really interesting benefits. Um, one is that we get the elimination of spanning tree, right? So if you think about a typical Ethernet network, when you combine a whole bunch of Ethernet switches... If you have redundant links between devices, typically we're talking about having to turn on things like spanning tree so that we can eliminate loops. But what this ends up doing is it results in a lot of lost bandwidth throughout our network. An interesting sort of side effect of creating an Ethernet fabric in the classical sense that we're talking about here today is because we're taking that control plane and centralizing it and all the devices are aware of the fabric and part of it, we can eliminate loops without the need for things like spanning tree or even link aggregation groups and those types of things. So simplification is really the key here. I guess sort of moving on beyond that, there's certainly some design goals. You, you asked is, you know, are there some fundamental difference between, say, an Ethernet fabric and plain old Ethernet? I'd say there are some design goals in mind when we're talking about Ethernet fabrics. Um, for example, many of the the ones, not all of them, but many of them are designed around providing deterministic latency, uh, equal cost multipathing, equal number of hops end-to-end, regardless of where you are ingressing or egressing in the fabric. 
And this tends to be the case with all the more modern day designs uh, based on spine leaf claws architectures, things like uh, the virtual chassis fabric, Juno's Fusion, some of the stuff that Arista is doing. But it's not always the case if you look at some of the legacy Ethernet fabrics that are out there, like Juniper's older implementation of virtual chassis. Now, virtual chassis was an Ethernet fabric. It gave us the benefits of single pane of glass elimination, but it's kind of a daisy chain configuration. There's You're sort of like a stack without a, without that direct connect stack architecture, but it was you know, Ethernet interconnects and so on. Yeah, you you had the single pane of glass um, and you, you were able to eliminate loops and all that, eliminate spanning tree, but it doesn't really give us that sort of deterministic end-to-end latency because it's more of like a ring configuration. And not leaf spine. Yeah, and so just quick comment to, to Data Knot's listeners. If you're not sure about leaf spine and what all that is, we did dedicate a show just to that. If you dig back through the archives, a whole show on leaf spine and why and predictable number of hops and so on. We got into that in some detail. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, just the, if we're looking at sort of the more modern designs with regards to Ethernet fabric, it's really all about ECMP, or equal cost multipathing, deterministic latency, and uh, same number of hops end to end, all these types of things. Oh, another thing is, you know, having a sort of an equal bandwidth between all the nodes, which is something that's sort of really paramount in mo- most of these architectures. Now, would you say an Ethernet fabric is something that only big organizations need or or should really any even a mid-size kind of company be looking at a fabric well yeah actually no i, th- I think that's funny that just that i tend to think of ethernet fabrics more for the small to mid-sized environments so i wouldn't even actually necessarily classify them now, it's sure there are some implementations that can scale to pretty large you know organizational needs but i would argue that most Big organizations don't need Ethernet fabrics at all. I'd, I'd rather actually encourage them to look more towards like an L3 fabric with some type of overlay on top. Ooh, okay. We're going to have to get into the details here. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, for the ultimate in scalability, we really want to look at L3 fabrics. Okay. Well, okay then. So what are the characteristics of a fabric that I yeah. should be considering to help me figure out what the, the right thing is if you're positioning a fabric as such for a small organization and maybe – you know, a larger layer three is maybe there's a typical scenario where your customers install a particular kind of fabric. Yeah, I would say, so there's, you know, obviously a a bunch of different kinds of ethernet fabrics out there and they are all kind of sort of could be classified into, you know, we touched on some are sort of like Daisy ring type configurations. Some are Manhattan style grids, like the, the uh, ethernet fabrics that Plexi is providing. And then others are more like a, spine leaf sort of classical implementation of a clause architecture. Outside of that, I would really say, you know, when I'm talking to customers, the the typical, I usually start by trying to determine the size of the customer's network and what their growth projections are. So usually, or ideally, if we can look, you know, five to 10 years out, I know that's easier said than done, but to the extent that we can determine what the projections are, the easier it's going to be to choose the right architecture. A, A classical implementation of, say, Juniper's virtual chassis can scale up to 10 nodes. So that might be great for very small data center type environments. If they have to go beyond 10 or they know at some point they're going to be moving on beyond 10, then that, that's probably not going to be the, the right fit for them. So there's different you know, solutions that I would propose depending on the uh, customer's uh, growth patterns. Now, when you're specking out a fabric, uh, well, let me give you a little bit of context here. So disaggregation, open networking, that's a thing. Uh, a lot of people are looking at commodity hardware to run everything in their IT stack no matter what it is. And in networking, that's coming up. 
people that want to be able to put together whatever fits their budget, whatever fits their operational requirements. So back to the fabric question, would you mix and match to make a fabric? Maybe spine switches from Cisco, leaf switches from Juniper, that sort of thing? Or, or does it tend to be uh, you know, a one vendor or one OS kind of solution? Yeah, unfortunately, in the Ethernet fabric world, the answer is it's pretty much no. You're not going to be able to mix and match from different vendors. If we're doing like these sort of Ethernet fabric architectures that provide you the single pane of glass, these are all, you know, to a fairly certain extent, they're using proprietary mechanisms under the hood. Uh, you know, they may reuse standardized protocols like ISIS to exchange MAC addresses. They're using like 802.1BR or, or MC lag. But each vendor is really just reusing these protocols in new and interesting ways for their own purposes. So they're, they're not really designed to interoperate with other vendors. So if we want a truly interoperable type of fabric architecture, again, that's where we're going to probably start leaning more towards like an L3 fabric. Yeah, or you're going to be right. You're going to be married to that vendor uh, with their solution. Right. And, and to some degree, you're going to pay their price, whatever that is. Right. And I mean, you know, in, in some cases, that's fine. You know, for certain customers, maybe they've got, uh, you know, a preference for one vendor or another, and they're, they're okay with that. But, you know, if there's any need to interconnect with other types of devices, yeah, obviously, we want to start looking at IP fabrics in that case. Now, you've mentioned layer two and layer three fabrics. Now, a lot of the people that listen to data knots aren't necessarily networkers. Everybody knows, has a clue about addressing and what the network does and so on, but maybe they haven't lived in that world where layer two or layer three are particularly meaningful. Can you explain the difference between layer two and a layer three fabric? Well, so a layer three fabric is, is, is much like, you know, typical routing. It's basically you have all your switches in your environment, but they're all operating as layer three hops. So in order to move traffic around that fabric, we're, we're really relying on IP routing as opposed to underlying switching. Now, if we wanted to do like a layer two stretch across like a layer three fabric, then we start looking at building a, like an overlay on top of that. That's where we start getting into the sort of classical underlay overlay type discussions. But this is really different from like a layer two fabric, which is to the MAC address, uh, you know, Ethernet packets are basically, you know, broadcast throughout the entire. Everybody knows everything about a particular VLAN. As opposed to everybody that's in a VLAN having to be encapsulated within a VXLAN to be carried right. across that uh, the Layer 3 fabric. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Stefan, okay, so L2 versus L3 fabrics, we've got a sense of that. Now, going back to L2 fabrics, back a few years ago, Trill and Shortest Path Bridging, they were, they were all the hotness, all the rage, and uh, several different vendors had products out there. Are those dead? Because you don't really hear much about those anymore. Well, I'd say, you know, it really depends on which vendors you talk to. I, I certainly don't see a lot of customers talking to me about that or have any interest there. I think if you look at like Extremes Fabric, Fabric Connect, which evolved from their acquisition of Via, uh, that's obviously based on something like shortest path bridging, obvious the need for spanning tree and all the issues that come with it. Um, and while it does greatly simplify network operations and, and increases agility, it's still a totally proprietary solution. It's not really designed to work with other vendors. Now, if we look at sort of the classical use case of shortest path bridging, not some proprietary fabric, but really just uh, to get some of the benefits and eliminate spanning tree, the main use case there with shortest path bridging is really most customers want to use that because they're running out of VLANs, capability to scale up beyond 4,094 VLANs in a particular environment. So they might do something like shortest path bridging to take advantage of Q and Q tagging to achieve upwards of a, of a 16 million you know, VLAN namespace. 
But in this regard, like, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves is if we're deploying shortest path bridging to get, you know, upwards of 16 million, you know, VLANs in our environment, are there other things that we can be looking at that do the same thing, you know? Right, because at this point, you might as well be talking about VXLAN, which gives you that same kind of a namespace. Right, exactly. I mean, so we look at the sort of classic underlay overlay using VXLAN, we get the same namespace density, but what are the benefits of VXLAN over uh, shortest path bridging? I think we're seeing the whole industry is really converging on VXLAN. So, you know, if you're doing things like Kubernetes and Docker, you're doing VMware's uh, NSX, you're doing Juniper Contrail, you've got VXLAN already built into that as opposed to something like shortest path bridging. And the benefits of having VXLAN sort of embedded into those types of uh, solutions is that we can start to automate a lot of these things, right? Yeah, well, and it's interesting. You mentioned VXLAN becoming kind of the overlay solution that everyone in the industry is converging around. Although, again, it, originally it felt like it was designed for, for scale and hyperscalers maybe needing these kind of things. But is, so we can apply VXLAN anywhere is, is what you're saying just because it's, it's baked in? Yeah, I'd say, you know, anywhere that you're, you would possibly want to deploy something like shortest path bridging, you can easily deploy VXLAN. And there's just more, I think, interest. There's more support from vendors for that. But at the end of the day, we're also kind of talking about two different things, right? Let's let's talk about Trill for just a minute, because I think there's some interesting comments that we can make with regards to Trill. If we look at what Trill and SPB and what, what they're doing, like you said, they really are designed to scale your network up. But the big difference with the way that Trill is doing it versus something like VXLAN is with Trill and Shortest Path Bridging, we're trying to solve a scalability problem in the hardware, in the network. Whereas something like VXLAN is more akin to underlay overlay type model. So we're pushing the intelligence and we're taking that out of the, the underlying hardware and putting that into software. And some interesting sort of side effects of, of that are is that we can start to automate things a lot more because we're bringing that, that capability into software. I mean, at the end of the day, when we're looking at hardware, we're always going to run into scaling limitations, right? So we can keep designing new protocols, things like that at the, at the hardware level to sort of so- solve these things. But I think, you know, what the industry is really sort of moving towards is taking some of these limitations that used to exist in hardware and using things like tunneling and fabrics with, you know, novel software approaches to solve the problems that typically exist in hardware, and so now instead of waiting for like a new hardware to be spun up to fix scaling issues, uh, we could just deploy solutions in the software layer to fix these, these issues that are inherent in hardware. Somewhat related to this, VXLAN, uh, as originally conceived, did not have its own control plane. And there was uh, a lot of multicast groups that would be created. So you'd, oh, we don't really need to go down that road in too much detail. I just wanted to segue into EVPN as a control plane that's been created here for VXLAN, and that's all the rage. And so many solutions out there now are uh, are based on EVPN. But early iterations of EVPN for Ethernet fabrics, the interoperability hasn't been great between vendors, even though it's supposed to be a standardized protocol. Any comments on that, how that's coming along? Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of work being done in EVPN. Every, every time you look, it seems like they're adding like yet a new sub address family or you know something there. But uh, in general, I think we're reaching a point where it's it's fairly stable. Um, I mean, especially amongst the the larger vendors, Cisco, Arista, Juniper. I've done interoperability there with EVPN. You know, especially for doing like data center interconnect. 
and I haven't seen any major issues. I'm sure that there's probably some corner cases, maybe things like uh, doing ESIs and those types of things between uh, different vendors that you might see some issues. But in general, I, I think for the bulk of what most customers are doing today, I think the interop- interoperability is, uh, is working well. The thing here that Stefan mentioned that stuck out to me, you know, Fabric, it, it's not that it's a different network. I mean, it's still Ethernet, but it's kind of Ethernet evolved. You get a unified view, you you get a centralized control plane, perhaps. And that those are the distinguishing characteristics of, of Fabric as opposed to just a plain old Ethernet network. Stefan, I want to move the conversation along to th- thinking about the topology of fabrics and how that looks. We've mentioned leaf spine and we've talked about leaf spine on data knots before. Let's think about how switches are connected one to another within that leaf spine architecture. So when I'm planning my fabric in intraconnects, I'll call them, so a switch to a switch within a fabric, I've got so many choices of optical modules and speeds available, and it kind of seems to change from month to month. I mean, it's not as simple as you've got 1040, 100. Now you've got 2550, 100, and then the optics and the cabling, there's a lot of variety there. What, what are your recommendations? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big can of worms right there. Um, I guess the, you know, the, the good news is, even though there are quite a bit of options out there, if you look at what a lot of the vendors are doing with the sort of merchant silicon, they're all kind of you know settling around the same chipset vendors. So even though there seems like there's a lot of options, if you look across the board, uh, a lot of them are very, very similar from one vendor to another. Having said that, I mean, it's, it's, it's always difficult to sort of plan, you know, I, I, a lot of my customers I'm talking to today, you know, they're, they're asking, you know, all right, should we even use 40 gig or should we just jump up to 100 gig or, you know, should we start, you know, planning on, uh, you know, 25 gig for servers? And so I would say, you know, again, obviously this is all sort of like a cost exercise, but if I were deploying, you know, any type of new, you know, leaf layer in, in my network, I would probably want to start deploying devices that, could service your 10 gig needs today, your one and your 10 gig needs, but have the scalability to go up to 25 gig and, and potentially have 100 gig uplinks. You know, if I was looking at a spine layer, I would certainly, you know, want to be looking at switches that supported, you know, either 50 gig or 100 gig for, for those uplinks. But yeah, that's kind of a, a difficult, each environment sort of unique. And, and I totally agree with you. It's a difficult to sort of navigate through all the options that are there. Well, you mentioned going on in between the, the layers, leaf and spine, and making sure you got a, you know, a big pipe in between those layers. What is your rule of thumb for oversubscription ratios between those tiers? In other words, the number of front panel ports on a leaf switch that all get collapsed into that set of uplinks that go into the spine. Well, I typically try to strive to have my customers on something like a, a three to one oversubscription ratio, but mostly that's just because uh, you know the customer base that I'm working with has very strict performance requirements. So I think it really depends on the workloads, how many connected devices are using the fabric simultaneously. The truth is, if you look at most traffic patterns, uh, I think many customers could actually use much higher oversubscription ratios. But I would really just start by identifying workloads that are consistently having network performance issues and, and probably take it from there. Okay, so you don't you don't go by a rule of thumb that, you know, eh, if we just do a three to one, that's probably going to be good enough. You, you actually take it on a case-by-case basis, look at the workloads and the traffic patterns, and then have a consideration based on that. 
Yep. I mean, you know, some of the financial customers that, I, that I'm working with, you know, they have even stricter requirements. They have like one to one or even two to one. So in that case, we're, we're deploying leaf switches that aren't even fully populated because, you know, if they were to do so, they would obviously impact, uh, you know, cause some kind of oversubscription. Not fully populated as in there'll be a bunch of uplinks that go into the spine, but they won't use up all the front panel ports just to keep it a one to one ratio between host facing ports and spine facing ports. Yeah. Instead of 48 ports uh, being used, uh, we'd have a 48 port switch, but we would cap it out at 24 ports. Yeah. That feels like a waste. Then again, if it's an optical switch and you don't plug in all the modules, it's not quite as bad as it might be. But again, I mean, I think that's those are like extreme cases. Uh, majority of my customers are perfectly. I, I I use typically just you know as a sort of rule of thumb, I try to aim for like a three to one over subscription ratio, and almost all of my customers are are perfectly happy with that. I mean, you're, you know, you're making an assumption that you know out of any three devices, you know, no more than one device is actively. having contention on the fabric at any given time. And as you pointed out, a lot of people, a lot of businesses could get away with an even higher oversubscription ratio than that. Right. Yeah. Well, what about a guideline for interconnecting two fabrics together? This could be like a, like a pod interconnect. You've got a pod set up. That's a, you know, a small E sign. You need to interconnect them, those sorts of scenarios. So I, I think, you know, for this type of architecture, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, approaches you could take, but my suggestion is that most customers just take a look at a typical sort of multi-stage five clause architecture where basically you're kind of creating like a super spine um, and then you're connecting all your, your spines or your pods together via a super spine. And this is a proven model. It's used commonly throughout uh, the hyperscalers, throughout many very large organizations. And hey, if it works for uh, you know Google, if it works for uh, Amazon, then it, sh- it should work for the rest of us. So five stage in that scenario, then the stages we're talking about would be a leaf stage, a spine stage, super spine, then back to the other second tier spine, and then back to the leaf again. That gives us our five stages. You got it. And in a smaller shop, the super spine doesn't need to be any great big thing. It, it could maybe just be a couple of switches. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've deployed some pretty large Uniper environments where the super spines were just some small tower rack switches. <laughs> You know, so, you know, a couple of t- two top rack switches you could use as a super spine. As long as they've got the the uh, bandwidth and the port density available, you, you, it doesn't need to be some kind of behemoth chassis or anything like that. Yeah, cause, and, and I suppose if the applications are placed well, there maybe there isn't a lot of traffic flowing between pods anyway. Yeah, I think for the most part, you know, uh, you know even though we talk about eliminating silos and creating like these big pools of sort of fungible resources in general, if we're sort of going towards that approach where we need to have like a super spine, then we're designing our network into pods or points of delivery. Right. And in a, in a point of delivery, we're basically kind of creating an area where we have a whole pool of fungible resources and inside that pod uh, devices tend to communicate with each other. So we can properly design our network to keep, most of the connectivity intrapod. Now, any tips for physical cable routing, which sounds like sort of a boring topic, I guess. However, when you get into leaf spine, one of the big deals about it is plugging all the devices into each other. You've got redundancy concerns. You've got the need of every leaf switch to connect to every spine switch and so on. There's lots of cables that are tied up in that. Any comments on just a typical physical cable plant or tips you might have seen uh, as your customers implement their fiber plans? 
I would say that for most of the customers right now, you know, I would, if, if I was talking to them about deploying new fiber to support this type of environment, you obviously want to go with the higher strand density type fiber, uh, either 12 strand or 16 strand type fiber, because those lend themselves really, really well to things like 40 gig, 50 gig, 100 gig, um, which is actually under the hood. They're using multiple lanes. You definitely have to think about if you're going from, say, like a classical 10 gig model to something above that, you're going to really need to start thinking about, you know, recabling and, and redeploying a new fiber plant to be able to support that. Now, does anybody do things like, oh, so between these pods, we want to make sure we have like a path redundancy. So we're going to put some of the cable and route it this way through the data center and some we're going to put, I don't know, under the floor versus aerial. Or- sure, sure. I, I've seen I've seen some of that where people have, uh, you know, different tracks and they'll, they'll run, you know, uh, sort of plane A through track one and they'll run plane B through track two just to kind of have some additional redundancy, right? But that's probably less common, I think, than, you know, you always see, you know, power supply redundancy. I don't think I have seen too many people taking uh, into consideration fiber redundancy within the data center. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, the odds are in within your own data center, it's not, uh, you're not likely to run into trauma with the fiber if you uh, have it carefully run and and tied down, as opposed to outside the building sort of redundancy where, you, you know, you might want like CO diversity that you ask for from your, your WAN carrier. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when we start talking about fiber diversity, you're really trying to eliminate things like a fiber, a trench being dug up by a, a backhoe. Right, yeah. Right? So that's that's less than likely to happen inside the data center. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I don't see too many people, you know, I'm sure that probably happens in maybe the hyperscalers or some things like that. But, uh, you know, most majority of the customers aren't taking too many precautions in terms of the physical cabling plant within their data center. All right. So we've talked about connecting switches uh, to each other within a fabric. We've talked about connecting a couple of different fabrics together. You mentioned the five-stage uh, class topology. What about connecting the fabric part of the network to the rest? You know, we've got uh, you know a, a core network that may hit a campus network. We've got an internet segment and so on. How do you jump from the fabric into the rest of that network? It's, I guess it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. If we're trying to do like a layer two stretch, maybe between multiple data centers, that might look different than if we're just trying to do like a, a typical layer three routed hop outside of the network. But yeah, typically you'll just have your spines that'll connect up to, you know, your, your core, your edge routers, or maybe some firewalls. If you, you typically have like some uh, firewall sandwich in between there somewhere depending on the environment. And then from there, you just connect uh, to your uh, your border routers. So a comment on uh, spines and spines being the interconnect point between the fabric. Um, I, I think depending on the fabric, I, I want to get your thoughts here. Sometimes the spines are pretty ignorant of, of what's happening in the sense that it's all encapsulated. And so they're pretty dumb as far as their routing tables. They just don't know a lot of what you might need to know. So is there another scenario there? I guess that would be more like a layer three overlay type of fabric. Yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that, you know, when we're talking about most of these spine leaf architectures, they, they're, we're not bringing full route tables into those devices. You know, that's a, basically considered a no-no, right? You know, the, these devices are really designed to provide intra-connectivity within the data center. And so we might have something like just a standard, you know, default route out, or, you know, we might be getting some kind of like OSPF default route from the edge. And obviously we're going to have multiple edges if we want redundancy and those types of things. But 
you know, from there, it's just a simple matter of uh, equal cost multipath out to the to the border. And then from there, we can, you know, the borders is where all the intelligence is, all the layer three routing tables, uh, full BGP route tables is going to happen. So you just announced some routes, um, in, in theory, summarized routes, because of course, you've carefully and well planned your IP address space. So uh, some summarized routes from the fabric out to the cores and then a default route inbound so that you can get out of the fabric to anywhere else you need to go. Yep, pretty much. I mean, the 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 fabric devices, they really just need to have, you know, reachability to other fabric devices. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, stretching layer two between data centers. Um, how does data center interconnect technology, which is you know another layer here that we could add to an Ethernet fabric scheme, how does DCI factor into fabric design? So, I mean, I think it, it certainly can. Uh, DCI technology sort of factoring into the fabric design, but but often it's not. I mean, I think... You know, we could use either an L2 fabric or an L3 fabric in these cases, regardless. That's kind of one of the, the beautiful things. If you're talking about DCI, you know, we're talking about connecting multiple data centers together. So, you know, in that case, does that necessarily impact what type of fabric we're using? And I would say more often the answer is no. You know, we can still use L2 fabrics or we can use L3 fabrics and we can still stitch those together via DCI. I mean, the underlying fabric is really just providing fabric connectivity within the data center. Again, you know, we're just providing that connectivity between fabric devices. And so when we're doing the DCI, we're typically relegating that to some edge device. Um, It could potentially be on the spine of the fabric, but more typically it's not. And the beauty of using sort of DCI connectivity options, you know, there's a couple different options that are typical in, in most data centers. One would be that two data centers are just directly connected via fiber couple of other options are MPLS-based Layer 2 or Layer 3 networks. But by using either one of those functions for providing the DCI connectivity, we're, all we're really trying to do is trying to provide IP connectivity between our two data centers. Or if we want full Layer 2 connectivity, then we, we might use something like a, a Layer 2 circuit between our spines. But more often than not, if we're trying to provide L2 connectivity between our data centers, we're going to use something like eVPN to provide underlying reachability between our two data centers. So we'll use like a L2 or L3 VPN to provide connectivity between those borders to connect the two data centers together. But all the ethernet and everything, all that exchange is is typically relegated to something like eVPN. On the Packet Pleasures Network, we've talked a lot uh, at a lot of different times about please don't extend layer two between data centers. And then we realize you have to, a lot of times, you, that that requirement is pushed down because of an application need, because of some sort of uh, design for how an application is being delivered. And the redundancy requirement or whatever it is may be the same IP address space has got to go from data center A to data center B. Right. And so some layer two extension is being driven. vMotion comes up as the driver most often. Now, when you run into design requirements where you need to do layer two extension between the data centers, what are the typical drivers for that? Yeah, I mean, vMotion, any kind of disaster. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of at a juncture right now, right? Because if we look at sort of mode one applications, stuff that, you know, required like, you know, layer two connectivity, then you're, you're absolutely correct. If, if we're designing a network environment for sort of uh, legacy based mode one type applications, then, you know, we're going to probably have to do some kind of layer two stretch, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're bringing that Ethernet layer end to end. So obviously that has inherent problems with things like broadcast storms and all that kind of stuff. But if we're designing for more sort of more modern 
mode two type applications, which tend to be more IP in nature or running on tops of things like VXLAN, then we can get rid of that layer two stretch and we can do a layer three connectivity between our data centers. And then using something like VXLAN overlay, we can still get that required layer two connectivity, but we're just doing it between workloads as opposed to doing it for our entire data center. So I think, you know, some of the drivers in terms of sort of, as you mentioned, vMotion, disaster recovery, all those types of things, wanting to have like a remote storage backup, you know, if they if they tend to be sort of legacy mode one, then we're going to need to do the typical layer two stretch. As we were going through this with Stefan, uh, the, the thought came into my head that a fabric is in part about keeping it simple. A fabric isn't meant to be complex. It is meant to be scalable, repeatable. And one of the ways you do that is you keep it as simple as possible. So if you're intimidated by Ethernet fabric and thinks it's this monstrous thing, as you begin to look under the hood and understand how it works, it probably isn't. It's probably fairly simple. All right, Stefan, I want to move into uh, the some ideas around scaling Ethernet fabrics, uh, security, managing them, and, and so on. So I got, I got a bunch of questions here. To scale a, an Ethernet fabric, one of the things that people consider as they're designing is, is the capabilities of the switch. So you've got things like MAC address table limitations and host route limitations and, uh, you know, and, and so on. Can you give people some pointers, things to consider as they're evaluating hardware that they should understand before they make a purchase commitment? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we kind of touched on this earlier, but I absolutely think, you know, we definitely need to think about scale when we're talking about deploying any type of fabric, whether it's Ethernet fabric or L2 fabric. But I think ultimately, if we're looking at sort of the more modern underlay overlay type architecture, in that case, scale of the hardware becomes a little bit less important because, you know, a lot of the scales moving into software, whether it's like a Contrail V router, maybe an NSX distributed logical router, we're moving a lot of the MAC address information, a lot of the host routes, a lot of that stuff's moving into software that exists like in a virtual router or some kind of VNF function somewhere in the network. So if, if we're talking about that kind of a, a model, then the underlay really only needs, needs to know about the MAC addresses of the fabric devices and potentially the, the VTEPs or the VXLAN tunnel endpoints in our network. It doesn't really need to have awareness of all the MAC addresses for our containers, for our VMs, all those kinds of things. Because those that information is encapsulated within VXLAN. The switch itself doesn't have to learn it. It's, it's carrying all of the VXLAN traffic, but once it's been decapsulated, it's dumped into the leaf switch in question. And, and Absolutely. That's, yeah, we, we don't need to know that across the entirety of the fabric anymore. You got it. So, but let's let's take a step back though, because we talked about that's more or less like underlay overlay type model. But if we're not going for that type of a model, you know, if we're just deploying, say, like a Ethernet fabric, and we're not doing like an overlay on top of that, then obviously scaling limitations become much more relevant for us, right? We're going to need to ensure that whatever devices we deploy as part of our fabric architecture are going to have enough table memory to maintain MAC addresses, ARP entries, host routes. And the fundamental reason for this is because Ethernet Fabric, if we're not doing any type of overlay on top of it, all the devices are part of the same fabric. And, uh, you know, whatever device is the lowest common denominator device in our fabric is going to affect everything. So we need to make sure that those devices will have enough, uh, you know, uh, table size to support 
That's a, that's a great point. So, so like uh, Mac address table sizes, if you've got one series of devices in there that only support 64,000 Mac addresses and someone else can support a million, well, the ones that have a million is great, but you're going to be bottlenecked by the ones that only support the 64,000. You absolutely will. And in fact, what you'll find if with most of the vendors in their Ethernet fabric implementations, if you have a situation like that, the whole fabric defaults to whatever the, the table size is on the lowest common den- denomination device. So, you know, it, they're all affected, even though only one may have a limited memory table size. And, and this is true across a, a kind of a variety of different tables. So you know, we've been mentioned Mac address tables. So layer two, those Ethernet source and destination addresses. We've got uh, host routes slash 32. That sometimes can is a unique table. We've got layer three routes your FIB uh, effect effectively. You've got IPv4 and IPv6, and sometimes those tables are, are different. And so what's what's the process then? Is it as you go into a customer engagement, you do some kind of a study and make sure that the hardware being recommended is going to handle them and then give them some growth? Yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of going back to uh, earlier in the discussion where, you know, I think part of a you know, any type of engagement is really trying to understand what the customer's needs are, how many devices they have in their network, you know, what kinds of address tables are they going to be using, you know, because in some in some environments, they may be using one, not the other, uh, you know, IPv6, they might not be using. So that might not be something that we need to consider. But it's really just about, you know, kind of getting a full understanding of all the workloads, you know, what types of things that might limit them in their environment, and then properly designing the network around that. You know, again, sort of we talked about sort of different Ethernet fabrics, right? You know, based on doing your due diligence and sort of proper evaluation of the customer's network, you can sort of determine whether you're going to want to deploy, you know, sort of a a small, medium or a large size fabric uh, offering for them. Right. So as you're you're evaluating the customer needs and so on. So one other thought just popped in my head, which is if you do some redesign and push some of the learning that's required into software, is it possible to get away with a less expensive fabric because you don't need to buy as capable of a switch? I would say arguably, yes. I mean, you can get away with using, uh, I mean, I think that's sort of the goal with a lot of this stuff. And and, and I think that's sort of the battle that's being fought right now by a lot of these vendors is to move the control of the network out of the underlying hardware and move it into software that resides in things like a server somewhere as a virtual network function, right? Because we can much more easily scale memory and those types of things in a server, x86-based server, than we can, say, in the the underlying network itself. So I definitely agree with that. By doing some of these kind of like sort of overlay models, we can get away with using less expensive equipment in our network. So I want to jump off from the that idea of uh, VXLAN and uh, and so on. That made me think of segmentation and security. Uh, if as we're segmenting different parts of the network, one of the use cases for that is to segment the network and keep you know, isolate uh, certain parts one from another. Now, micro segmentation. Most of the micro segmentation solutions I've seen. NSX, uh, Illumio, and there's a bunch of other ones that are out there. They push micro-segmentation out to the edge. It's like a centralized manager, and then there's a distributed firewall maybe, or maybe they're just manipulating the host firewalls, IP tables, Windows firewall, to accomplish micro-segmentation. But is there a role for an Ethernet fabric to play in, in micro-segmentation? Or maybe, maybe I just need to broaden it to segmentation uh, in general. Yeah, I, so I would say... 
And obviously, segment micro segmentation, that's all the hotness right now. I'm talking to a lot of my customers about this. Uh, you know, all of them are trying to sort of minimize that east west sort of native ability for VMs to just talk to each other and get some kind of uh, additional layer of security there. I would say, in terms of uh, doing micro segmentation, the underlying fabric really, in, in my in my uh, experience, plays very little role in terms of this. Um, I mean, there are certainly cases where you could build micro segmentation into your network and use the fabric, but this is going to involve a lot of VLANs, a lot of hairpinning of traffic up to you know a fire, a physical firewall somewhere, and then back down. It's just a really really ugly type of thing to do. Oh yeah, ew, no, that's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so typically when we're talking about east-west traffic segmentation, you know, look, this could also be intra-host. So even if we look at the model that we just described, where we're hairpinning traffic up to a, if the traffic is intra-host, they're going to be able to talk to each other unless you put them on different port groups and different VLANs. It just it it just turns into a mess. So for these types of requirements, we're really looking at layering some type of SDN controller on top with like a traditional overlay. Uh, you describe NSX. That's one. You got uh, Juniper's Contrail. They got the the the, the Contrail V router. These types of things allow us to do a lot of the traffic steering and the service chaining that might be necessary to uh, to properly micro segment everything. And it really it automates it. I've I've been working a lot with NSX, and uh, you know to be able to do micro segmentation with NSX is just a breeze. All right, I got one more question about uh, fabrics. That's this is sort of a kitchen sink question, and, and I think we hit on it a little bit. But that is about managing the fabric. Now, you said near the top of the show one of the things that distinguishes an Ethernet fabric from just kind of a generic Ethernet network is that there's a centralized control plane, and you're probably managing it centrally. In other words, you're operating the fabric as a unified whole. You're not programming a bunch of individual switches one at a time. So that that's true across the board. Would you say that I'm using a central manager? maybe some flavor of software-defined networking to control my my fabric if it is indeed a fabric? Well, when I was describing uh, centralized management in our Ethernet fabrics earlier, what I was really describing was that uh, in, in most cases, it's still CLI-based, right? You're logging into one of the switches in your environment that happens to be sort of the leader of the fabric, and then you're managing the entire fabric through a single CLI, single pane of glass, so, you know, that's great. If you're a CLI jockey, you want to simplify the number of devices you're managing, you can do that, right? Uh, but if you want to use something like a central manager, you can do that too. So, for example, in the Juniper world, uh, you could use something like Juniper's network director to manage um, everything in the L2 fabric. And that's more like a web GUI type. Uh, it's a Juno space application that lets you manage uh, your entire Ethernet fabric from a web GUI. But you certainly don't need to do that, right? Other types of options in terms of, uh, you know, if you deploy an Ethernet fabric and you want to move away from CLI, then yes, you could easily layer something like SDN on top to make really s- sort of seamless uh, management of all these solutions. But probably I would say you're only going to be looking at doing those types of things if you're really looking to sort of automate the network when you instantiate your VMs and your storage. If you're really trying to look at sort of the classical SDN cases, it's really about we want to instantiate our network at the same time that we instantiate our VMs and our storage. If you don't have a need for that, then SDN might be a little bit of an overkill. So instantiating networking at the same time that you instantiate uh, things at the more at the server, the virtualization layer, right. that would be where, like say it's a VMware environment, the network's got some kind of integration with vCenter and there's a communication going on between 
well, let's just call it generically a fabric controller and uh, and vCenter so that there's an awareness there that, oh, something's happening in the vCenter environment and I need to create something in the network to support that request. You got it. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. And then there is there is a lot more of those uh, kind of integrations going on. I know I had a conversation recently with with Big Switch Networks, for example. They have what they call Big Cloud Fabric that uh, will integrate with vCenter and with uh, Nutanix and with Kubernetes and automate a lot of those straightforward and fairly frequent configuration needs that come up as a data center requirements change. Well, Stefan, this has been a great discussion about Ethernet fabrics, and hopefully the people that listen to this that aren't necessarily networking folks have got a better sense of what that leaf spine or whatever their Ethernet fabric is really doing and why it matters and how it's managed and uh, and integrating it with perhaps their hyperconverged infrastructure, et cetera, what that's all about. Now, you've written a book. I know you blog and have Twitter. Tell us all the things. How can people keep up with you, find your book, and uh, and so on? Well, yeah, you can obviously follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, twitter.com slash uh, forward slash sfuant. Uh, I have my uh, blog at shortestpathfirst.net. So uh, feel free to take a look there. And yes, as you mentioned, uh, I did publish the book on Juno's Fusion Data Center that came out last October, uh, but there's been some interesting new developments. Uh, the previous iteration of Juno's Fusion is based on MC lag under the hood, and Juniper's recently decided to change the plumbing under underneath the hood, if you would, uh, to use eVPN. So I'm going to be writing a second edition of the book. It should be da- uh, out later this, this year, perhaps uh, by October, covering the Juno's Fusion Data Center with eVPN. Wow, that's a major change uh, going from MC lag to EVPN. That is not not light, um, but it, but it is an interesting path forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you again for coming on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening to today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you are social, you can follow Chris Wall on the Twitters at wallnetwork.com. Chris was not here today. He is our normal co-host, of course, and he'll be back for the next show. And I am at EC Banks, and you can find out more about me, ethancbanks.com slash about, and jump off from there to any any of my writing or podcasting. It's all there on that about page. And for more of our Data Not Shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Knots there. We talk about containers and certifications, PowerShell, conferences, full-stack engineering, cloud-native, you name it. Anything to do with infrastructure, we're there, including shows like this about networking. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. across the finish line. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs>